0: Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Yes? Great. You can hear me. It's helpful. So you've had uh, three days of practice. And uh, from the meetings today, it feels as if you're right on track. Everything is as it should be. There are all kinds of visitors coming and going, and um, as you sit, you walk and recite the phrases. There are some moments of heartfelt kindness, you're reporting, some moments of bliss even, and some moments of not-so-bliss, the flow of practice. There are unexpected delights and unexpected Uh, states of mind and heart. We received a a note from a yogi today that says, I usually am so full of love at home, I haven't ever felt this irritable for for such a long amount of time. What's happening? And in a meeting today, another yogi said that what she was feeling was anti-metta for a fellow yogi. And another yogi talked about the fact that last year he was perfectly doing the metta, happy, happy doing the metta practice. And this year, it's as if he doesn't want to open his heart any more than it's already open. So I'm wondering if any of this sounds familiar to you, or if this is totally um, foreign to the way you're feeling. <clears throat> so for those of you who've been on retreat before, you're probably not surprised uh, you know that the process of a retreat is always a surprise, and that the uh, you know the graph is not one that goes like this or like that, but it actually fluctuates and undulates so that we may have periods of um, calm and bliss and, and then periods of plateau and it appears that nothing's happening and then periods that Where uh, things seem to even be going off the off the rails or off the tracks, and uh, so you know that even what you experienced in the last sitting is not necessarily what you'll experience in this sitting. So the first insight of meditation, insight meditation practice, is impermanence. So you might say that you've already experienced this insight. And yet it's amazing how we continue to assume that things are always gonna be the way they are now, isn't it? So we can learn to be with whatever is arising, whatever is happening in this moment with care and with attention, with kindness, knowing that it most certainly will change and that even if previous states um, appear to re-arise, they will, re- they will arise differently. They will not be the same state, even if it's just because this moment is new. And so you can greet uh, the moments of arising and disappearing with that kindness and curiosity that we've all been uh, speaking about. No matter what's happening, as Mark said last night, you can bow to it. You can thank the mind for its opinion and meet it with curiosity and love. And I'm sorry, I apologize about my voice. Uh, Bryony this morning said that she hopes the yogis will enjoy my Barry White voice. So I'm sorry if it's a little croaky and it's coming in and out. I've gotten a little cold. So even if it's a mind full of hatred or aversion or uh, a version for a fellow yogi or some experience that's, arrived, that's arriving or arising, you can always meet it with curiosity and love. That's never an impossibility. Then, when we do that, whatever these mind states have to teach us, we are creating the space and the opening to learn from them. And as we're learning, as we do the practice with Uh, diligence and with patience and with determination. The bhavana, the cultivation about which uh, Sharon and Mark uh, spoke, is also unfolding and you can have some confidence in that. So that innate kind heart that is our birthright is being invited into this open space Uh, that from the phrases is created as we keep uh, the steady rhythmic flow of the practice. Of course that's as best we can with as much courage and balanced energy as we can. So I bow to the um, the energy that you've put into your practice and um, I bow to uh, whatever is arising for you. Tonight I'd like to meditate on two noble qualities of heart mind <laughs> that are emanations of metta. They are uh, compassion and what is variously translated, a word in uh, Pali that doesn't have, doesn't seem to have a one-word um, equivalent in English uh, It's mudita in Pali, and I've seen it translated in various ways. It's translated sometimes as uh, sympathetic joy, sometimes as um, appreciative joy, sometimes as unselfish joy, as altruistic joy. It's essentially uh, the joy for the joy of another. And Mark touched on uh, compassion and a little bit of uh, mudita. I'm going to use the word mudita because it's, it's uh, a, and you can read all of those meanings into it last night. And what I mean uh, by emanations of metta is that these qualities are also inherent and innate in our nature. And that the cultivation of metta will inevitably uh, lead to these qualities when the heart-mind of metta touches uh, the experiences of suffering uh, and of joy. Uh, so that when, uh, when metta meets suffering, compassion is born. And when metta meets joy of oneself or another, mudita is born. So in a way, we're reflecting on how the heart of metta, which is a peaceful, clear uh, mind and a loving heart, responds to these experiences, not only internally in ourselves, but also externally in the world or in others. And together with uh, equanimity, another quality of, that's, an, in a way, an emanation of metta, which is in Pali, Upeka. So together with this quality of equanimity, uh, mudita, I'm sorry, uh, compassion and mudita, metta, karuna and mudita are known as the 4 brahmaviharas. So they're metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and uh, upeka equanimity. These are called the Four Brahma-Viharas. And the translation of uh, Brahma-Vihara is, uh, a Brahma can be uh, best, or heavenly, or divine. And Vihara is um, abode, or dwelling, or home. So again, they're ver- the words Brahma-Vihara are variously uh, translated as best home, or divine abode, or heavenly abode, or divine dwelling. And they're also uh, sometimes called uh, boundless states in the texts, denoting the immensity, uh, the immeasurability of uh, these states of mind. So tonight, I'll focus on and meditate on uh, Karuna and Mudita, And it may seem as if uh, these qualities, because of the way I speak about them separately, are separate and uh, independent from each other. But in fact, although we speak about them that way, when you reflect on them, uh, you'll see that they really are intertwined qualities of mind and heart. And they may either co-arise with each other or they'll arise independently. So first, let's talk about uh, Karuna, or compassion. Hmm. It's hard to talk about it without noting uh, the state of of the world, how uh, difficult a cycle we are in, in the history of the world. We're witness to a culture. Um, In the part of the cycle of its history in which it seems to me that uh, cruelty is being woven into uh, the fabric of our society, our culture, ever uh, more and more deeply. We don't have to go very far to witness the fact that in our precious country, born In so many ways, from the weight of oppression into the ideal of humanitarianism and a central tenet that was based on concern and protection for the least fortunate among us is descending into disdain for and blame of the unfortunate and a callous indifference to suffering this is true now in our public discourse which has become bombastic and cruel and in our social policies that have become wealth-centric and polarized by ideologies we have lost our way in believing that we can freely torture beings that we have a right to to do that to get what we think we should get, and it's all around, around us in the environment, where we feel free to uh, despoil the environment, to um, uh, uh, worsen or, sp- or speed up the extinction of a species. And this, this, of course, infuses our environment, and we know that what can happen is that our hearts can close, if we are not vigilant, and if there is not an explicit intention to be aware of uh, the movement of our own hearts away from the suffering, because we are um, because we are afraid that we will become overwhelmed. I could go on with the statistics in our. Culture, but I think you probably know them well. I know uh, we're bombarded daily with all of the alarming trends. And this is not a political speech, and it's not to advocate for one side or another in our polarized political system, but to look at the suffering uh, that is right under our very noses. And of course, our culture doesn't have um, a monopoly on cruelty. By simply reading the headlines in any given day, uh, we can find cause enough for sorrow in what William Wordsworth called man's inhumanity to man. All over the world, we are performing unspeakable acts of cruelty to perceived enemies and sometimes even to our own families out of the desperation that comes from poverty and oppression. So when we know the depth of the sorrow of the world, there is no need for us to ask whether what we are doing here together is valuable or worthwhile. Because we know that this world is surely, surely, sorely in need of the one who responds with a loving heart, a gesture of generosity, the support of compassion, and the wisdom of equanimity. What you are doing here, what we are doing here together, is essential to the well-being of the world. Thomas Merton talks about being in his uh, monastery during um, I think it was World War II, and his abbot coming to him and saying, telling him that he had no idea how many beings he was supporting simply by doing what he was doing in his prayers. So we should not respond to uh, this sorrow of the world or this difficulty of the world so much by thinking that we have to get up and run out and uh, start to do something. Certainly for some of us, that may be true. And for others, uh, just doing what we are doing here, contributing a kind heart and um, a clear mind is uh, well well worthy of our lives. And gratitude and joy which we'll talk about in more detail a little bit later, are no less important emanations of metta as qualities of heart, as, it, as uh, it teaches the heart generosity and multiplies the quality of joy that uplifts the spirit and balances the sorrows of compassion and awakens in us a generous and gracious spirit. So these qualities are uh, worth cultivating. These uh, teachings about our simple and direct practices to help cultivate these qualities in your own heart. They're not, as we've been saying over these three days, qualities that we have to go shopping for. They're woven into our human spirit and our very cells. And the only nourishment they require is our intimate, wholehearted, and heartfelt attention. Attention to freeing uh, the heart and mind. And then our hearts and minds can fully realize their capacity for love and compassion. His His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says they are our birthright, that we have these seeds within us and they just need watering. Jack Kornfield says often that when the Buddhist texts address us as, O nobly born, they tell us we are all sons and daughters of the Buddha. They say, do not doubt your own basic goodness. In spite of all confusion and fear, you are born with a heart that knows what is just, what is loving, and what is beautiful. So often, we find ourselves in conflicts, in the complexity, the ever-growing complexity of our modern life. We face difficult situations, and our problems can feel insurmountable. And so pain, anger, and fear can arise in us and in our human relationships, in our families, in our business, in our communities, and between nations. So even in the darkest, in our darkest hours, or in our um, worst situations, these boundless states can uplift us to see that it is possible for the heart to be free. And as you know, that is what these teachings are. Um, The purpose of these teachings is uh, to free the heart. Yet we often, focus on the dark side of our human nature, the shadow. In the words of Jungian analyst Robert Johnson, he said, curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It is more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out that you are a bum. So we'll see if we can meditate on these noble aspects rather than on all of the things that we think make us that bum. So compassion Karuna, it is said that it is a, a fluttering of the heart in response to the pain of ourselves or of another. It's said in the text that the near enemy of uh, compassion is pity and the far enemy is cruelty. That that this pity is like sympathy, a a kind of general, distant sense of concern, or pity for the plight of others, and that uh, um, compassion, rather, is like empathy, a real sense or feeling or understanding of the suffering of self and others. And that arises from uh, our, um, our practice in which the wisdom of seeing how we are and who we are in relation to others uh, becomes naturally this understanding that there is no separation from uh, other beings, but that actually we're all uh, fully and firmly uh, interconnected. I was um, years ago at a retreat here at IMS, a long retreat, <clears throat> in which a friend of mine uh, was also uh, sitting, and she sat um, for the first six weeks, and I was sitting for the also for the second six weeks, and she but she was leaving a little bit um, earlier than the actual break of the two retreats. And so on the day that she was leaving, it just so happened that um, I was outside in, at the front of, of the building, and she came rolling out with her suitcase to, uh, to take her leave. And as we saw each other, we, we, we kind of met, and, um, and we hugged, you know, not so good to do in a retreat, but she was leaving, uh, just so that you don't use me as a model. And um, it, we hugged, and, and uh, she she whispered in my ear, um, because she was going, my husband, I was not, my husband wasn't here, and so she was going to see my husband, whose name is John, and she said, um, is there anything you'd like me to tell John? And I said, no, thank you. And, uh, watched her go on her way, and, um, and I left, and then I went to my room, and I started weeping uncontrollably. And uh, I won't tell you the entire story, because it would be too long, but what eventually happened is that that moment uh, became a connection for me with a moment in which, uh, for various reasons, I had to be parted from my mother when I was five years old. And, of course, a five-year-old took that as abandonment, even though that's not what it was. And so somehow, in the depth of the retreat, in the stillness and silence of the retreat, uh, that memory was triggered, and it was triggered in a quite somatic way. Well, it went on for days, uh, this sadness, this grief, this processing of what had happened uh, in my life so many years ago, and um, eventually, I you know I had r- meetings with teachers and talked about what was happening, etc, and got lots of suggestions about ways to work with it, but it, essentially what had to happen is that it had to take its own course and eventually. I, I would sit in the hall, and I would be weeping, and so I had to leave, and I would come back, and you know, back and forth, and then finally one day I was sitting in the hall, and I sat uh, without weeping, and I was able to practice to, 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 uh, to simply be with my, my breathing and the body and what was happening right then in that moment. And as I sat, this grief came up, And as the grief arose, what began to happen is that there were projected onto my mind pictures of five-year-old girls, that one would come from way behind and she would come around and face me. And the face of a five-year-old girl of all races and, and nationalities were each one kept coming. And there was an understanding in that very moment that these were all five-year-old girls who had been abandoned. And as they came, I could see uh, more and more, and there was a, a feeling more and more of the, and of the understanding that what I had been feeling as my abandonment, as my as something that was very personal to me, was indeed a universal uh, experience. One that had been experienced by countless countless five year old girls over eons and however however many thousands of years mothers had had to leave their daughters for whatever reason, and so what what I began to see was the um the the very 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 deep truth that this was not my abandonment but that this was the abandonment this was the pain of the world. This was not something that was personal to me. And that understanding has served me well in, in, in knowing viscerally and um, undeniably the interconnection that we all share, that my suffering and your suffering are not different. They may feel very per- It may feel very personal. And of course, we experience it personally. But that, in fact, there is a deep well of sorrow, there is a deep well of suffering in the world that we all share. And it is, um, as the Sufis say, uh, Pir Vilyat Khan, who's a, who's a Sufi master, said, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart, and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. So when we understand this, the deep connection that we have, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in which we share in this pain as well as the joy, but we're talking now about the pain, we are able uh, to express compassion, not in a way that, uh, we, where we think about it or we Uh, contrive to meet the pain of ourselves or others, but we are able to meet it with open eyes, open ears, and an open heart. That compassion that arises when metta meets uh, pain is really the offering of presence. And it's an act of courage and of freedom to be present with something that is uncondition- something unconditionally that can be overwhelming, without referring to whether you like it or not, you want it or not, you should be there, you shouldn't be there, but simply to meet it, to have the freedom to be completely present. And we need that to be present in the world, because all flows from the open heart. And the greatest danger that we face is the deadening of our hearts and minds. Compassion arises uh, from love, from this heart of ameta, And and it overcomes any fear or indifference that we may have to the pain. We may fear that we can't stand it, that if we take it all in, and we may we may fear that we might be shattered by pain or stuck in despair forever. But the greatest gift that we can give is the gift of presence, not a great, not great plans or strategies to ease it necessarily, um, but sheer irreplaceable presence and the willingness to remain completely vulnerable to that pain, that sorrow. And compassion allows us to extend warmth and sensitivity and openness to the world around us and ourselves rather than being burdened by hostility and uh, resistance and even prejudice. So compassion sees suffering and wants to alleviate it. It is healed by that loving presence that feels connection and that is uh, not separate. And this uh, compassion is not um, an emanation of the heart that makes uh, divisions between people or between inner and outer. But as we deepen in our understanding, any arbitrary division we have about the internal and the external or the inner and the outer disappear because the essence of life is wholeness. So we don't divide our our compassionate attention into inner and outer, into individual and social. We We may make arbitrary decisions for the convenience of a collective life for analysis, but any division between inner and outer has no reality, no meaning. So it's not, so when we're, we talk about our uh, interconnectedness, we are talking about inter- interconnectedness not only uh, between individual human beings, but between us and the whole society. Compassion reminds us that, we is, that there is this wholeness and that there is no um, uh, fragmentation between the two. So um, if we pay attention deeply and we are open to our vulnerability, we will know in the face of pain and in the face, face of suffering what is called for. In the texts, it's called uh, clear comprehension of purpose. Because if we pay attention and we see suffering clearly, there is no other response than compassion. And when we are able to see clearly, we act out of love and compassion. And it's hard to see pain. It is hard to endure suffering. And it's difficult. Uh, I find even to read the newspapers sometimes. We have we went from getting the newspapers daily down to getting it only on weekends. And even now on weekends, we let the Saturday paper sort of lie on the table for a while. And then on Sunday, we take a glancing look at it. and it's, And it's difficult to read through the whole thing. Knowing that, however, that I am not separate from the cause of all of the difficulties, that none of us is, that we are part of the main. So our practice keeps us connected so that we can see the pain and bear it and still do what is necessary. We form the intention to act. And acting is the antidote to the pain of seeing the suffering in the world. Mahatma Gandhi used to ask, how is what I'm doing now going to affect the poorest person on the earth? That is true compassion. I looked for a story that I wanted to bring you tonight, but I couldn't find it, of a woman who um, was taken hostage by a man who had um, escaped from... He was, he was a prisoner, and he had escaped from prison, from from the courthouse where he was being indicted. At gunpoint, stole a guard's gun, and uh, went into the street and uh, found this woman as she was going up to her apartment, and at gunpoint made her take him up to her apartment. And the story was that um, the woman who had a five-year-old child uh, in the apartment sleeping, talked to this man uh, in such a way that as, uh, as the night wore on, and he kept her prisoner for uh, overnight and on some, something like 24 hours, as they woke up in the morning, he said, she made me pancakes with butter, with real butter, and I'd never had pancakes before with real butter. And she treated me like a human being that she actually um, talked him into giving giving her uh, permission to go and see her five-year-old child appealing to his heart uh, and eventually he knew that when she went to see the child that she would be able to make a phone call and she made the phone call and told the authorities where he was but what could have turned into something that was so horrendous, so horrific, and um, clearly of danger to herself and her her child. Uh, turned into something that was where he peacefully surrendered himself as the authorities came, and it all um, happened because I'm sure that she was in complete fear, but managed uh, to stay open, to stay vulnerable to that fear, and to meet the suffering of this man who was clearly um, in not in not in great shape to meet this the suffering of this man in a in with an open heart and as a as a human being to another human being. And as I read the story originally I was I was struck by the fact that uh, this ability to stay present and open and vulnerable and uh, Frank Ostaseski, who is the founder of uh, Zen Hosp- the San Francisco Zen Hospice, which really started in large part the hospice movement, the, the growth of the hospice movement here, talks about compassion snuggling up to the pain, that what it wants to do, that compassion is powerful enough to be able to snuggle up to the pain in the same way that your mom, when you were uh, a child and hurt yourself in the same way that your mom was able to snuggle up with you and actually ta- show you the wound so that uh, your fear could be overcome. Th- this woman was able in a way to snuggle up to the pain of this man and to, um, to have a, 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 a peaceful resolution to what could have been a quite violent incident. And so that's the power of compassion, that power to be um, present and able to respond appropriately to know exactly what is um, needed in the moment uh, comes from that clear mind, that clear comprehension of purpose, that clear mind that understands deeply what is happening now. And compassion is not the purview of just uh, Buddhism. For, a, for several years, I worked as a, um, as a volunteer chaplain in, in a prison, um, in a, the hospital wing of a prison, with people who, have, who had AIDS and cancer and kidney failure in different stages of dying. And the medical help, as you can imagine, is uh, quite substan- substandard uh, in the prison system. And we would try to be chaplains, giving spiritual counseling to um, the dying and for the unbearable loneliness, the feeling of abandonment that so many of the women in this uh, security, maximum security prison had. And I worked with a wonderful Catholic nun who said, I never go into a room alone. I always make sure the sacred heart, the sacred heart of Jesus is with me. And I always understood that to mean what we talk about in, um, in, in our uh, Buddhist world as compassion. And what happened is one day she was carrying this little text and I said, Sister Elaine, what have you got there? And she, she showed it to me. And it essentially was the section of a Buddhist text called uh, Shantideva's Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And I said, Sister. <laughs> and it was in the hortatory subjunctive, as Sharon said. <laughs> uh, It said, may I be medicine for the sick. It started, may I be medicine for the sick, a home for the homeless, a comfort to the lonely. And I I said, sister, that's a Buddhist text. And she said, shh. (laughs) So there's this idea of heartfulness that she's willing to stay in touch with uh, and committed to stay in touch with. And she also knew it wasn't about Catholic or Buddhist or Sufi or whatever else. And we would have these amazing uh, services on Sunday, and all of the women from the hospital would come and sit with us. And I would do Buddhist meditation, and she would do Catholic stuff. And then, if we knew that there were Muslims in the in the um, uh, in the prison in, in in the population in the hospital, we would. Uh, do honorary things for Ramadan or for whatever other holidays were coming up. And it's easy to lose touch with it and with this heartfelt uh, compassion. But when you are committed to staying in touch with it and going into a room, it's there, it's palpable and it's felt between human beings. And after doing that work for a few years, it became clear to me that uh, the visits were not so much about teaching meditation or teaching this or teaching that, but that what was most valuable was this willingness, this ability to stay present with the suffering, to see it, to touch it, and to feel it. And the willingness to hold the space in which that can be witnessed is worth so much more to someone who's abandoned, unforgiven. Hmm. So I'd like to — I'm not going to give much enough honor to uh, Mudita, but I'd like to talk about it. a little bit, and uh, perhaps we'll have an opportunity, I don't know, later on, to speak a little bit more about it. So Mudita is the innate delight in the well-being of others, and uh, it's it's a, a, an antidote to envy and jealousy, which seems to be pervasive in our uh, culture. Writer Annie Lamott describes how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. She says, It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend. She says, for instance, say, her head to blow up. <laughs> right. um, the French writer Montaigne put it a little bit more delicately. He said, there is something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortunes of our friends. All right. So we respond, usually, to the good fortune of others with envy or jealousy. Envy is uh, ubiquitous in our culture. uh, So it's as if we're hardwired to believe that there's only so much happiness to go around and that if somebody else gets too big a chunk of it, then there won't be any left for us. And if you keep your eyes open, I'm sure, you know, maybe maybe it's not you. Maybe I've just seen a lot of it. Maybe I notice it in my own um, makeup sometimes. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you don't see it. But um, when your lover has dumped you, it's probably probably a wedding is not exactly where you want to go the next day, right? Or a good friend of mine, um, a yogi who has been practicing for over twenty years, said. How hard she finds it to look around a yoga class and see younger practitioners uh, in poses that elude her I had a I sat a retreat with Saida Upandita, who Sharon has mentioned and uh, in the Burmese tradition there's a, um, a, a the tradition for meetings uh, you'll see when you when if those of you who haven't come to meeting individual meetings you'll see that we do them with closed doors in the Burmese tradition. In this particular tradition, anyway, um, the tradition is that you go to your meeting and you're as you're sitting, waiting for the sayadol the person ahead of you is having their interview and the door is open. So you can hear every single word that the other person is saying. And I was at this retreat in which, every day, we'd meet with a Sayadaw, and the person ahead of me was somebody who who had been with Upandita for a year, and the person behind me was Joseph Goldstein. (laughs) So there I was, right, with um, the perfect yogi, interviewing with Sayadaw Upandita before me, and we won't talk about Joseph, Joseph's practice, or the fact that Joseph could hear everything about my practice, and uh, there he was. There was this yogi in front of me who was having these amazingly precise reports. And if you don't know, the in in that tradition, you you give um, very precise reports about your practice about. What you observe from moment, literally from moment to moment to moment, about your breath and your thoughts and sounds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you're you're, try, you're encouraged to give very precise reports, which of course gets your attention during during your practice, but also uh, reveals for you when you try to um, describe in a precise way reveals uh, where your where your attention has been lacking. And so here was this perfect yogi in giving his report in front of me. And I would sit there listening to Upandita having just slapping his knee and having a really great time with this yogi. And all I could think about was what he was going to think about my report. And then the guilty pleasure when one day the practice of this other yogi crashed. He was having a really hard time, and it was hard to miss the irony of my um, sitting there, um, being contracted, uh, having a contracted, comparing, restless mind. Um, And I began to understand this as a pattern that I had nurtured in my life. How much do I do this in my life, I wondered. how often do I feel threatened by another person's success? How would it feel to be happy for that peaceful person sitting in front of me instead of wishing for his practice to crash? Did I really believe that his success would diminish my own? Did I really believe that somehow his discomfort would elevate me? And I at that moment, I really began to appreciate this quality of mudita, this um, state of mind and heart, in which, as the Dalai Lama said, if we are, if we are happy at the happiness of others, then our happiness has the uh, capability of being multiplied five billion times because we not only have to rely on our own happiness, but we rely on the happiness of all to make us happy. We live in a society that believes in winners and losers. We spend a lot of hours um, watching competitive sports and we're happy when our team wins and we hate the other team when they win. I saw a t-shirt that said, I'm a fan of the Yankees and of any team that beats the Red Sox. I know there's some Boston people here, so you probably don't think that's funny. You probably <laughs> think that that's just perfectly true, right? So we, we often resent the uh, success and happiness of our pairs as if they're taking something away from us, as if there's this little stockpile of goodness in the world, and if somebody else has it, we can't have it because they're taking their share and leaving less for us. And it, the Buddha said that in a battle, the winners and losers both lose. The winners lose, he said, because those around them envy them and become resentful. Eventually, their, their position will be challenged until their power is lost. And so the cycle of winning and losing is continuously changing and appears not to be the reflection of one's absolute superiority or inferiority. But he he talked about the fact that conceit doesn't necessarily only mean feeling superior to, but that any comparison that we do with others is a matter of conceit, whether we see ourselves as equal to, more than, or less than, it is a conceit to, Believe ourselves capable of being compared to anyone else. So, this term, uh, unselfish or sympathetic or altruistic joy mudita, comes when we delight in other people's success or delight rather than uh, begrudging it. But as we taste our own um, success, as we taste our own joy, uh, it makes it possible for us to develop the cap- the capacity to taste the joy uh, of others. So we feel our own joy fully. We feel our own success fully. We feel the delight in our own happiness. And that can take the form of gratitude or the understanding that everything in our lives is a blessing, even the the times when we feel that um, things are dark, that that we are despairing because things are not going the way we feel they should be going. That we understand that uh, seeing things in a narrow, in a narrow uh, perspective is not necessarily uh, the truth of the way things are, that we can only understand how things are unfolding as we take a much wider and uh, longer view. And the more deeply we drink uh, from the fountain of our own joy, the the more secure we become in our own happiness, and the easier it then becomes for us to relish the joy of other people. So for our own joy, we develop and cultivate gratitude, and in the joy of others, we develop and cultivate mudita. There is much more that can be said about it, um, but we'd be here for a couple of hours, so I think I won't do that to you. There are ways that we can um, work with both Karuna and Mudita in our practice. Uh, The phrases are in compassion can be, may you be free from your pain and sorrow, or I care about your pain and sorrow, or may you hold your pain with compassion, or may your pain and sorrow be eased, or you can replace pain and sorrow by suffering or sadness or fear or loss or illness, whatever the specific um, suffering happens to be. And for sympathetic joy, may your happiness and good fortune continue. That deep wish that whatever happiness is coming um, will be increased. May your happiness and good fortune increase. May they never end. May they never wane. Or may you enjoy happiness and abundance or even just a simple wish of a simple statement of, I'm happy that you're happy or may your happiness continue or may it grow. And of course, you know, sometimes, especially with people that we love or people with whom we're intimate, we think that their happiness should be a particular way that, uh, they should marry the people that we think they should marry and their lives should be lived exactly the way we think their life should be lived right they should have the, the uh, they should have the, the the career that we think they ought to have they should take that job and not that job or whatever um, our preferences are for them we think that that's what ought to make them happy but mudita is not that mudita is simply recognizing the joy that uh, another being has and taking delight in it and as we cultivate that, and as we allow that to grow in our own hearts, we be, we come to have deep respect for the choices of others, and we have come to have deep respect and deep joy for um, the joy that comes uh, in their own lives. And of course, we're not um, we're not encouraging joy that comes from uh, someone else harming. From, from harming someone else. It's, it's not that, and it's not that we are denying or suppressing uh, um, what we see, but that if someone is genuinely happy and is happy in the choices that they've made, that we, we can certainly be happy for their happiness, uh, letting go of any judgments that we may have or any idea that we may have that they ought to live the lives that we think they ought to live. So, compassion and uh, sympathetic joy as two emanations of the heart of metta, the heart of kindness, um, can be cultivated in the same way that metta can be cultivated. And as the uh, days unfold, the next couple of days, we might be doing some of that work uh, in the afternoon, um, but again, as I've said sometimes in the interviews, uh, what we're offering are several tools for you, because um, as human beings, as we practice, we know that all sorts of things are going to be coming up in your, in your practice, and uh, what we're encouraging is that you meet these arisings. With um, some uh, balance of mind, and with as much care and attention and kindness and general and generosity of heart that you possibly can. And so each of these tools that we are talking about that as Sharon spoke about, um, uh, meta and and Mark expanded on that with meta and mindfulness last night and uh, the tools of uh, compassion and mudita, all of these are simply tools that you can you put in your toolbox and so that as you are aware and mindful and present uh, for what is happening in your practice, you're able to meet it with some wisdom and with some uh, discerning clarity about what would be appropriate. Uh, and that, of course, is is um, also encouraging you to do the practices that are are being offered as well as you can, um, in as rhythmic and as flowing and as um, measured a way as you possibly can, so that uh, your attention can be clear, your mind and your mind can be clear and your heart can be open to whatever the the movements of your your practice are, whether you're in a state of um, bliss or near bliss, or a state of despair or uh, sadness or sorrow, that all of these experiences are understood as part of your practice and part of your life. And they are met um, with, with clarity and as 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 we said from uh, Vilyat Khan, that we meet them with joy instead of self-pity, that we understand, and and that joy comes not so much from a um, from an ignoring of what is here, but from a true wisdom about the nature of uh, this being, the nature of this mind-heart, that. Um, uh, that the experiences, um, a a broad range, a broad uh, spectrum of experiences from joy, to sorrow, to sadness, to the pain of the world, to our own personal uh, sorrows. So I thank you for listening. And uh, my deep wish for you is that um, that your your joys will be multiplied and your sorrow is diminished. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Seed